Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast, where we seek to go to the question behind the question. This is Pastor Charles Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz, today, Thursday, March the 8th. How are you today, Andrea? I'm doing well. Looking forward to this topic, because I think it's one that is on a lot of people's minds. Yes, it couldn't help but be, because uh, the news broadcasts are filled with scary, spooky stories about North Korea having massive amounts of nuclear power ready to lob a bomb into the United States and Russian meddling in U.S. elections and Russia this and Russia that. So it's understandable that people will be concerned about whether this is something that should be on the front burner for us and what should we think about these uh, alarming reports. Are we on a crash course for a nuclear conflagration? Here we are in the early 21st century, and we're still having to be concerned about that. But I think there's another question behind that question, a much deeper issue, and one that really for Christians goes to the heart of what is really going on here, and that is this. What is the biblical basis for warfare? Now, right away, that might seem like a puzzling question for some folks, but listen, if God's Word is absolutely authoritative and it speaks to all areas of life, this ought to be the first place we go and not to the news reports or the so-called Department of Defense experts and these other folks who probably have, if they've ever cracked a Bible open at all, it's been to you know, read the uh, the story of Daniel and the lion's den to their kids before they fall asleep if they even do that. In terms of just being an average person, and I consider myself an average person, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a friend of people, I've got extended family, I live in a neighborhood, I know my neighbors, they're fellow Christians that I'm in touch with. And when you start thinking about nuclear armaments being aimed at your city or your country, and you have had any exposure to a lot of the apocalyptic films or television programs, there is a natural response in terms of what would I do with that? I mean, when the electricity goes out, yesterday we had a little blip for about maybe a minute or two. I was in the middle of working on my computer. I had stuff in the oven. The electricity went out, and now suddenly what am I going to do? My, my, most of my house is electric. So I think the fear is actually a much more personal fear. What would this mean for me? And so the tendency is, well, I've got to find out what's going on. Well, you and I both, no matter how well-read we are, we are not making the decisions in the halls of Washington. So there's this additional stress What's the right thing to do? And will the people who are so-called representing us, do they even know the right thing to do? And can anybody know the right thing to do? Because is there a right thing to do? Americans, uh, especially we who are Christians, are at a significant disadvantage if the only way that we come to think about these issues that you've referred to there on a personal level, on a wider level, if the only way we think about these things is how our minds have been informed by the news media and other types of media, that really we have to sort out how much of what we are being told is accurate and what is the basis, the the information that's being given to us 
where is it coming from and why is it being given to us in that particular way? Add to that, though, what was your schooling like? What did you learn about history? What about the wars in history? Were they just three chapters in a book? And gee, I'm so glad we don't have those issues anymore. And certainly most pulpits, not only do they not talk about things like war and whether warfare is biblical, pacifism is biblical, they don't really often talk about current events because you see then they think that they're muddying the message of the gospel because why talk about current events? Why don't we just talk about the pure gospel? And of course, the gospel, if it's anything, it needs to be applied and it's the most relevant thing there is. And you got to look at current events in light of the gospel. But so often that's not the case. So people are left with the secular sources to go for information. I was recently listening to an interview that Mark Rustuni did with radio host Kevin Swanson, and they were talking about some of these same issues, not so much relating to warfare, but the issue, and it was Mark who made this point, that at a certain point in our history, the idea of the application of biblical faith, it was understood that it applied to everything in life or at least, if not everything, a whole lot more things than it does now. But there was this gradual movement in biblical Christian churches to make it more personalized. The, the whole application of the faith has to do with my interior life and my personal relationship to the Lord, and these other things like warfare, economics, politics, all of these things that all go together in the discussion we're currently having, that should be left out because it's not really religious. That. It actually goes toward a, another topic that we will probably talk about in our next podcast. But all of this that we're talking about right now is just a, a lead up to the more incisive and pertinent things that we're going to mention in just a few moments. But yes, the schooling is very important because if a person is being taught that the official line is all and absolutely true, then that's all they're going to spout back. Let me just give one example. Most of us today in, in our certain age range remember the Vietnam War. Many people, however, even who, who are in the baby boomer age range and, and a few years younger, may not at all be aware of an incident that occurred that pretty much guaranteed the United States' involvement in that war, and it was called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which turned out to be absolutely fabricated and false. The United States public was led to believe that an attack had been made on U.S. vessels when in fact, it hadn't happened. There are many cases like this. So let's understand when we talk about war and whether we should be concerned about bombs and nuclear attacks and this sort of thing, there are a whole lot of factors going into this that aren't immediately apparent. And hopefully what we're going to do is drill down into this as we go through this. But I think what I'd like to do now is to get into the issue of, okay, what does the Bible say about warfare? I mean, this is the ultimately what we're talking about, and what in the world does Scripture have to say about this? And I'd like to start us off, if I may, by referring to uh, several passages, which I'm not I'm only going to refer to, but I would ask our listeners to, on their own, read Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, because in these verses, the Lord gives instructions to Israel, and thereby through them to us in his law, the foundational principles about warfare. And in those verses, the first point that we can extract from that is that his law stipulates that the people who lead us, the people who would be making these kind of decisions, to use the words of Scripture, should be from among our brothers and not a foreigner. So, in other words, 
to use a phrase that's typically heard, you must be a natural-born citizen. That's an important point, because the idea is that the, the person who has the authority to declare war, or at least, if not in a constitutional sense, in a moral sense, we need to have confidence that they're looking out for our interests, just like your own husband or your brother or your mother would be very concerned about protecting you in a way that somebody else's brother or mother might not be. Wouldn't you say that for us to be on solid biblical grounds, the assumption or the presupposition on that is that it's more than just self-interest, although it's important. It's in terms of the covenant that these people live by, the covenant with God, because that would be much more than self-interest. We can talk about self-interest, but self-interest wouldn't necessarily mean righteousness. Absolutely. And the whole concept of being a citizen of a state or a member of a family or of a church involves covenant. That is unavoidable. Americans typically may not be aware of it, but you are covenantally bound as a citizen of the state in which you reside. You are covenantally bound if you are married and if you are a member of a church. And so, yes, that becomes a, a very important factor in, in terms of, a, a, quote, a natural-born citizen or one of your own brothers. That has much more than just a biological connection, and I think that's the point you're, you're getting to. Jesus said in John 10 that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I think the problem that we're facing, if I can just jump ahead with this comment without actually going ahead into the where it might lead, is that the problem is, is that our good shepherds too often when it comes to warfare and military conflict are not laying down their lives for the sheep. Matter of fact, most of the people who decide to send other people into war don't ever involve themselves in it at all or their own children a lot of the time. When you look at biblical accounts of the king of Judah or the king of Israel, the king got on the horse and he was leading the charge. That was part of why people wanted a king, because the king's bravery, the king's military strategy and tactics were important. And if you just said, we have people sitting in nice cushy chairs deciding, let's send 20,000 young men to go fight this thing and they don't put their lives on the line. Yes, and in terms of, uh, again, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit because I'm going to have some more specific things to say about this, but in terms of sending other people's children into conflict in which they may be maimed or killed, I remember hearing a statistic when the first Iraq war was being promulgated about the number of U.S. military casualties. And I don't remember who it was, but somebody pointed out a little-known fact when those figures are typically given, and I remember it seemed like every night on the nightly news, you know, this was the early 2000s, and so people were typically watching network news more than they are now, but the current death toll or whatever is this amount. That number did not include military who had been severely wounded and then shipped off to Germany or somewhere in Europe to a military hospital and later died. So there again, you have a, a deception taking place so as to give a very distorted image about, in this case, U.S. military casualties. But in terms of what we read in Deuteronomy 17, and again, I would ask the listeners to, to read those verses, we extrapolate from that and understand from that is the nature of what is the leadership. And the next thing is, is that it's obvious that the operating assumption for God's people is that the king, the leader, the president, or whoever, is not allowed to have a standing army. Now, that doesn't mean that they could not have well-trained, well-prepared militia. It means no permanent standing army. 
It's interesting in our modern times, Switzerland is an example of a nation that does that. Now, they do have mandatory military conscription in Switzerland, but I looked up these statistics just before we went on to our podcast. According to Wikipedia, under uh, Switzerland's military system, professional soldiers, people who are permanent military and serve in the military for decades, constitute only about 5% of the military, and the rest are conscripts at any given time. And the structure of the military system stipulates that people who have served their time and then, you know, been laicized, so to speak, they've gotten out of the military, they keep their own personal equipment, they keep their guns at home, and I think until recently they kept all their ammunition at home. So they have a type, it's not the, the, the perfect biblical model, but Switzerland has a type of citizen militia that is ready on a moment's notice. But the other key factor about Switzerland that comports very well with the biblical pattern is that they are not allowed and they do not participate in aggressive warfare actions with other nations. Now, if any country tried to attack and invade Switzerland, they would be facing an entire nation of armed citizens who've been trained to fight. (laughs) You can do your own research, listeners, and find out the last time Switzerland was invaded. Which is a very interesting point, although obviously a little-known fact, with the whole gun control thing and that we've got to get guns out of the hands of people, Switzerland appears to have done just the opposite. And, and as you pointed out, look at their history, look at their track record. People don't go and invade Switzerland. And I'd ask the listeners to consider this on a small scale because it applies in this instance as well. Another aspect of the biblical standards for warfare is that it is exclusively done in self-defense. And I don't mean in some convoluted, twisted into a pretzel definition of self-defense. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say in your neighborhood, you happen to look down the street and you see somebody being attacked. Now, you might come to their aid if you had the ability. You might call the police. But in terms of your motivation to do something about that, it would be qualitatively different than if you were being attacked, if your own home was being invaded, One of your own children was under attack by somebody on your property attacking your house and your well-being. So the idea there is that someone is much more likely to more effectively and aggressively defend their own turf and their own property, their own homeland, their own place of residence than someplace 2,000 miles on the other side of the world, which there's no connection whatsoever. Unless, of course, it's put forth in propaganda that your home, your people, your family are going to be at risk if we don't do something about these people across the world. Yeah, and let's talk about that that just a little bit, because one of the other biblical principles that we learn from Deuteronomy 17 and the reason why God prohibits a standing permanent professional military, again, not a well-trained citizen militia who are qualified and able to fight in any instance where it's absolutely required. But if you have a standing army, there's a continual temptation for whoever controls that army to use it for military force somewhere. And that's the very reason that God punished David for taking a census. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 24, because that's the first step in raising a standing army is doing that census. A lot of people read these passages in the Older Testament and they don't understand, well, what's the big problem with numbering the people? Well, you've got to make those connections and realize that the accumulation of horses, for example, you've probably got a lot of horse ranches out there in California. 
I live places where people keep horses for racing purposes or whatever. I'm pretty sure that most people that have a horse ranch, they don't keep them for military purposes these days. But back in older times, they certainly did. God simply does not want his people involved in these types of exploits and this type of business. It's interesting that you say that because if you don't have this context, if you don't understand why you wouldn't want to multiply chariots and horses. I was having this conversation with somebody and the person said to me, what's a chariot? They didn't understand what a chariot was when I was mentioning it. So we don't even understand that that had to do with military equipment, military capability. But why it's such a convoluted mess now, take every sporting event, take any national event, let's include Olympics, let's include the Super Bowl or whatever it is, there's always this, and now a member of the U.S. military will sing the Star Spangled Banner, that how can you be a good American and not be happy with our standing army? That standing army is what protects us. And I think that's where a lot of the hoopla comes in on holidays where, at least in California, you'll have the Blue Angels flying over and everybody goes out to see it and everybody cheers. And I remember my husband saying, what happens when those Blue Angels are turned on us? And most people go, well, it would never be turned on us. We're Americans. That would never happen. Which, of course, there's no historical reason to think that that is the case. If anything, is just the opposite. And this might be a discussion for a later time, but you can see with the militarization of the local police department, you see these pictures on your local news. I'm sure it's the same all over the country. You know, the police are called to some place to do something, and you, you think the National Guard have just shown up because of the way they're dressed. They're driving tanks. They're dressed in, in military fatigues. This is a very ominous sign, which our founding fathers uh, were very concerned about. And see, that's another aspect to this whole discussion. Foundationally, it is a biblical issue. We must ask what God's Word guides us and teaches us and binds us to in terms of this particular aspect of human existence, which means, in this case, warfare. But we also see from this that the founders of these United States thought along these same lines because they were informed by the same way of biblical thinking, not to say that they were all biblical scholars, but our forefathers and foremothers, they had had enough of the type of uh, brute military force that they were subjected to by Great Britain. And the very things that were built into our constitutional freedoms as a republic were meant to make sure that something like that never, ever happened here, which sadly, over the past 20 or 30 years, that has fallen away. And we are in, according to some experts like the great attorney John Whitehead, we, li- we live in a, a police state. But I want to mention something, now another aspect to this. And we are, and to some extent, calling into question the issue of whether or not we ought to be concerned about some of these things. Maybe this, the, the, the saber-rattling and the scaremongering is just that. It's, it's propaganda. It's promoted to legislate a certain type of agenda that may not be readily apparent. Let me share with our listeners some, some figures they may find very, very interesting. In the year 2012, the U.S. total military budget was $611 billion. In 2013, it was $618 billion. In 2015, it was down slightly to $598 billion. And in May of last year, President Trump sent Congress a proposed budget of $639 billion. I'm only going to comment on that to say that that dwarfs the military budgets of about six or seven other countries combined, including China and Russia. 
But here's the thing. Here's what's really behind some of these figures and why people ought to be concerned about whether or not our United States are involved in wars and military activity that has a biblical foundation. Listen to these statistics. The Northrop Grumman Foundation, or industry or corporation, they had arms sales of $21.4 billion last year. Raytheon, arms sales of $22 billion. Lockheed Martin, number one, $40 billion. Northrop employs 67,000 people. Raytheon, 63,000 people. Lockheed Martin, 97,000 people. If your business is the arms industry and you've got those massive numbers of employees, well, what do you think is going to happen if there are no more wars or if wars are limited to those that simply line up with Holy Scripture? Follow the money, as they say. Follow the money. And I hope that our listeners are not naive enough to think that money has no corrupting influence whatsoever on anyone. And if you've got a company that sells $40 billion worth of arms sales and 97,000 employees, it's really not going to bother you that much if all of that just simply goes away within the space of a year or two. And I got to tell you, because having been a student of biblical law since the mid-80s, the more I study and understand it, aside from saying this is what God's law says and we should do it, there comes a greater sense of, oh, I understand now why God would say this. Not so much to make people vulnerable, but for people to recognize that sin, unrepented, unredeemed sin, exists at all levels of society, personally, in families, in churches, in schools, in businesses, and in the civil realm. So we always have to factor in sin as a driving force for people to do things, whether they're trying to avoid sin or whether sin doesn't even come on their radar in terms of biblical definitions. And so it sort of ruined, <laughs> I might say, watching movies and, and television programs because now when I watch a World War II film, my first thought is, was that a biblical solution? Was the presupposition that that soldier was making or that that leader was making, is that in line with scripture? And you realize that in many cases it was not, but because we quote unquote won, then suddenly whatever those folks did, it's something to be repeated. And when you dare bring up what does the Bible say, you'll get well-meaning people, people who profess to believe the Bible from cover to cover saying, oh, don't be so unrealistic. There's no way that we can apply God's law to the situation in Korea or the situation in Russia. It's just not practical, and you're a fool if you think it is. Yes, and that is a type of atheism, frankly. It is a rejection of God and his law for a different God and a different standard of law. You know, I would invite our listeners to do some research on their own on these matters. I remember reading a book entitled JFK and the Unspeakable. It's about more than just simply the Kennedy assassination. It's about the entire environment leading up to his assassination, especially the Cuban Missile Crisis and the, the very real potential nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union and, and Khrushchev. And one of the things that came out of my reading of that book, which is heavily footnoted, this isn't somebody just spouting an opinion, is the fact that the portrayal of the ability of the Soviet Union in the late 50s into the early 60s to be on parity with the United States in terms of nuclear arms and the threat that was posed by the Soviet Union to the point where people are building bomb shelters in their backyards and all this sort of thing. It is now known to be absolutely and totally inaccurate. 
that they had nothing com remotely compared to the U.S. nuclear capability. And so uh, this is the problem that we find where people have an interest other than what the Bible says and to suggest that we need to turn away from Scripture. And I'm talking to Christians now. I'm talking about people who claim to believe the Bible and take it seriously. I'm asking you to consider, where is your real allegiance? God wants to know this, and it's okay if you think Andrea and I are, are completely wrong, but the outcome and the results of turning away from God's law are visible and tangible for every one of us to see. There can be no debate. There's no argument. Look at the nature and the condition of your culture and your society. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, if you describe modern life to someone 200 years ago, they would throw up, and throw up their arms and say, you're describing the apocalypse. You've described the end of the world. And here's another aspect of it, and it's amazing to me how many people, I'm talking about friends of mine that I've known in church circles and homeschool groups and where we would say we're brothers and sisters. When you ask the question, why can't another country have nuclear arms if the U.S. has nuclear arms? Why does the U.S. have the authority to say Iraq can't have it? Korea can't have it. Isn't it presupposing that somehow or other there is a special status to the United States of America, despite the fact these same people would talk about the atrocity of legalized abortion, would talk about the atrocity of the move towards euthanasia, about compulsory education in state schools and persecution of homeschoolers, and the legitimizing of alternative forms of sexuality, which the Bible calls abomination. Why don't they make that connection? I suggest the reason why is because of two words. Yes, but. The yes, but. You know, yes, oh, yeah, that may be true, but we've got to do this and we've got to do that. Again, like I said, it comes down to this issue of faithfulness and commitment. And at some point, people will wake up, hopefully, and realize the whole world has crumbled around them, not because of the Muslims, not because of Iran or North Korea or the Russians, but because God has brought his covenantal judgment against this culture and this nation for its continual covenant breaking. I don't think there's any doubt that in some sense, in some way, God, as the song goes, shed his grace upon us, but that grace was bestowed upon us for covenant faithfulness. It doesn't continue when you flaunt God's law and disobey him. God is not in the business and habit of rewarding disobedience. I don't know how any, anybody could read Holy Scripture and come away with the idea that, oh, oh wonderful, these people are, are murdering unborn children. How great. They proclaim that marriage can be between people of the same sex, and who knows, eventually one day between a man and a goat and whatever else it may be. It's the idea that God will shed his grace on America because he will. And that goes back to this idea that America should be the policeman because, you see, we're so superior. Well, we all have experience with the every April 15th, everybody has experience knowing that what they own, their labor, their efforts, their income, and really theirs, because unless they give an account to the Internal Revenue Service, they either will have to shell a bunch of money over or they won't get back what was taken from them as the first fruits of their labor. So if you lose biblical law and you lose its applicability for today, not only are you then subject to tyrants, you won't even understand that this isn't the way it should be. 
You won't even understand it's a deviation from what liberty really is supposed to look like. That is is absolutely spot on right. And it's a type of, well, Dr. Rastuni referred to in another context, intellectual schizophrenia. I think it's a type of falsified thinking where I time and again hear people do that. Yes, but yes, but this and yes, but that. Yes, but America is still the freest nation on earth. Okay. Do you own your house? Yes. We paid it off five years ago and, and, and also the land it sits on. Okay, since you own your house, why don't you try this? Stop paying your property taxes and see how long you own your house. See, that, that's a, a perfect example of how people say one thing out of one side of their mouth, but if they thought about it long enough, they'd realize that because of another area of compromise with God's law in the area of taxation, they really are not free like they think that they are. And uh, I, I want to move back to um, what we're talking about in terms of what Scripture says. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 to 20, This is another passage that talks about the laws, in this case, of raising an armed militia for the purpose of waging war. Let me be very clear, the Bible is not against warfare, not by any means, but it needs to be God-sanctioned and God and biblically based. And in these verses, Deuteronomy 25 to 20, we are given those basic principles. And in in the first case, the militia is raised, as I've mentioned before, as a defensive action, not as an offensive action. Again, that's one of the problems that you have with a standing army. You're going to have to do something with it. You're not paying these guys to walk around and do military marches and things like that nonstop. Sooner or later, if you are a ruler, you're going to put these guys to work somewhere and for some purpose. And as the list of those companies I shared with the the listeners a moment ago indicates, uh, people need to be making money off this stuff, and they're not making any money unless the bombs are dropping and the drones are flying and all the rest of it. A second principle is that an army of this nature, a citizen militia army, is religious in nature. Uh, that is unavoidable. You know, what is the purpose of these people engaging in this struggle and in this battle? Ultimately, it is a religious one. The question is, what is the religious foundation or the religious basis? And then I'll just mention a third, and that is the fact that you have this prohibition against offensive war and the idea that it is voluntary. And this gets into another aspect of it, that when you read these verses, you realize that when the militia is raised for the defensive purpose, there were still yet liberties that were given to people. So, for example, if a man was engaged to be married to a woman, he was told, go home. You're not going to serve in the militia because you've got more important business. If there were certain crops planted, uh, these types of things that might divide a man's attention from prosecuting victorious warfare, He was told he did not have to serve and probably could not serve because it was an understanding uh, you need to be completely free of any fetters that might be binding you in an understandable way. So there again, the idea of a military draft where they don't care what your situation is. You're going to go in and fight this fight and come what may. This is another example where in past, at least the U.S. has deviated from a, a biblical pattern. I think a lot of people's view of how God views these kinds of things includes that we make our insurance payments. We want to be insured against bad things happening to us. And part of that insurance is accepting the protection of our government. And so a lot of people are very confused when they read, for example, Romans, and they think, well, whatever the civil government does, we're supposed to obey. But then they give away the fact that they don't have a prior allegiance to God and his word. Yes, and 
another aspect to this whole process that we're talking about as it relates to the question of having a standing army and going back to those same verses in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I mentioned how certain individuals would be dismissed from mandatory self-defense military service because of these other concerns. And it's interesting in that passage, after that is, is done, the, the scripture mentions specifically the appointment at that point of leaders. The leaders are appointed. Now, if you've got to appoint leaders in a circumstance like that, well, it's obvious that that means they didn't exist before, which means that there was no professional standing army. There were no lifetime career military men. Again, these are the patterns and these are the themes that are given to us in God's Word. I think it's important for us to say that we recognize that uh, either with our, with our own families or among our circles of friends, uh, fellow church members or whatever, we know people who currently serve or have served in the military. This is certainly not to disparage any of them personally or in terms of their personal integrity. But I find it very interesting that in terms of politics, one of the only people who has spoken out along these same biblical lines, maybe not for precisely those reasons, but nevertheless almost exactly in terms of the content, was Ron Paul in his presidential campaigns. And in the last time that he ran, which I think was 2011, it was absolutely clear that of all the Republican nominees, he alone got the most support from currently serving military than any of the rest. And he was talking about these same principles of non-aggression and defensive war only. And he himself was a military veteran during the Vietnam era. It's interesting that when we hear people talk about this, the only ones trotted out on the news media are the anointed ones who are going to continue to support whatever the, the government line is. We are rarely able to hear from your next-door neighbor who just got back from Afghanistan or Iraq about what it was really like there. If you can ever talk exactly. to people like that you will be given a very different perspective than what you're getting on the, the big-name news networks. To go one step further, when you talked about the people who were exempt from military service if a man had just gotten married, it was so that he had that year with his wife to have a child so that when he did have his service, if he didn't come back, she had something for the future. For the people who had just planted a vineyard or a field, that feeding themselves and others took priority over war. Well, it's flip-flop now. War has the highest priority so that you even have Christians applauding the women who leave their young children to go serve in places that more than likely they couldn't even point to on a map before they were sent there, and they're being applauded as heroes it's such a reversal of what God says. God says that the family is the institution that should be bolstered and protected, and now we've shifted it to the national government. Yes, that type of attitude and that type of applause would be much more fitting in ancient Rome than it should be here in these United States. But sadly, we have become very much like that. I want to say, too, that, of course, when you talk about warfare, you talk about killing. It was R.J. Rushdoony who pointed out that in God's law, the language in the classic King James Version, to which I am not particularly wed one way or the other, but he pointed out that the translation there, thou shalt not kill, is indeed the best way to translate uh, the Hebrew words there, rather than as most modern translations have it, you shall not murder, because what's in view there is something far more than just murder. Murder is a part of it. 
but illegal or against God's law killing not only involves taking the life of another person unlawfully, but it also involves things like destroying crops, destroying animals when you are engaged in warfare, and God's law gives very specific things about that. So thou shalt not kill is the proper way to understand that, and we should also think about that in terms of when you are involved in proper warfare, you don't engage in this wholesale slaughter and decimation of you know, entire places. That, that, too, goes back to ancient paganism. It was the pagans who were in this business of total warfare where buildings are destroyed, crops are destroyed, when you know, the Romans supposedly would plow salt into the ground to make sure nothing could grow there anymore. That's pagan war. And if you look at any pictures of the Vietnam War, the napalm that was not only destroying the crops and everything there had negative effects on the soldiers who participated with it. Total destruction is something that's not ancient. It's very much present. I happen to know someone personally who now, may he rest in peace, died just a few years ago who saw military action in Vietnam and was a victim of uh, Agent Orange and some of these other things, which, again, it comes back to the money. If you're a company that produces weapons, uh, chemical weapons for warfare, you've got to sell and make the money and make sure they get put to use regardless of what happens to the environment of where they used, uh, the people on whom they are used, even your own people. And on that note, before we go, let me just say that in terms of the Iraq war, both versions of it and the sanctions that were brought against that nation not counting military deaths on both sides, but just in terms of the civilian casualties of men, women, and old people. The numbers are upwards of 600,000 to over a million people who have died through no fault of their own. They were not involved in military action. Many of these people would have been Iraqi Christians who did not get out before the warfare started, before the United States invasion. And we don't hear the voices of those crying out who have suffered in these ways because we're not allowed to, and we're told not to think about it. But God does. Indeed, he does. We started off by talking, should we be afraid of North Korea or Russia? The scripture tells us that there are principalities and powers in high places, and that what we shouldn't fear are those that can kill the body. That our emphasis needs to be on being faithful, on being obedient, so that when we come to the end of our earthly lives, that when we stand before Christ, are we going to be numbered among the sheep or the goats? And that's not just becoming overly spiritual and pietistic. It means that all that we do, since the faith is a faith for all of life, we have to reflect on and examine what we give assent to, what we say is proper and right, and those things that we have to say need to be reformed in our own personal and family and community life so that we can once again expect God's blessing on our nation. Yes, when we all stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God, there won't be separate lines for Russians, Iranians, Koreans, or Americans. There will only be two lines, covenant keepers and covenant breakers. And if the two great commandments include loving God completely and loving our neighbor as ourself, then we have to basically go back to who is my neighbor? And of course, what Jesus did when he was answering that question was who was a neighbor to that man? So how are we to look at 
how we're being neighbors to other peoples of the world just because they don't have American next to their name doesn't mean that they're not God's people and they're not our brothers and sisters. On that note, why don't we see if we would recommend some some books to our listeners along the lines in which we've been talking about here uh, today, Andrea. Um, Are there any that you'd like to recommend? I have a few. I think I'm going to take one that you were going to say. Since you referenced passages in Deuteronomy, I would say it would be a good bet to start with Dr. Rushduni's commentary on Deuteronomy, where he'll take chapter by chapter and really flesh out the meaning of what the Scripture is saying. Yes, that is absolutely an excellent resource. I would also recommend uh, a very short little paperback book, um, not quite a little over 100 pages, by Dr. Joel McDermott of American Vision. I have relied very heavily on his writing on this matter because he is coming from the same perspective of the biblical foundations as Dr. Rush Dooney. It's a little book he published called The Bible and War in America, A Biblical View of an American Obsession and Steps to Recover Liberty. It is published by American Vision and available through them. Highly recommend that book. Well, until our next podcast, we would like to thank our listeners for listening. And, Andrea, would you share our email address once more? You can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com where you can do a couple of things. You can suggest future topics, pose the questions that either you would like to see answered or maybe questions that stump you a little bit. How do I answer this when somebody asks me this question? And then, of course, letting us know what you think of how we dealt with a particular topic and if you have differing views or if you think we need to expand our view of something, we're open to honest, polite Christian dialogue that we're interested in getting to the truth of things rather than fighting for fighting's sake. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.